if you have um, a cell phone, you might want to turn it off right after you text the person you're supposed to meet with and say, I'm going to be just a wee bit late. Uh, just giving you a heads up, but I, I, I think that the, the material this morning is going to be um, the type of material that will keep your interest. I, I thought it was very um, fitting that we interviewed Hannah this morning, and she's going to an orphanage, and it's all about what we're talking about this morning. I do trust if the Lord has stirred your heart that you will pray about helping uh, support Hannah, who has supported us for a long time. So uh, be in prayer about that. You, you may have heard about the older couple that was driving down the road. Uh, and they had been married for many, many years and they were quiet. Not because they came from a different era, but because there was tension in the marriage. And particularly in the car at that moment. And so they passed a, a field of donkeys and the and the husband who was driving said, relatives of yours? And she said, yes, in-laws. <laughs> I mean, look, look, it's just too easy. There are so many jokes that could be told about marriage. And almost all of them point to the difficulties in marriage. Um, they're funny because we know that marriage is never as good as we thought it was going to be when we were engaged or first fell in love and then it turns out that it can be a whole lot better, but in different ways. I remember when I was in middle school that my parents told me uh, some friends of uh, the, the parents of a friend of mine were getting divorced. And I almost did not know how to process the information. I was so shocked that someone that I knew, his parents were getting divorced. And I thought, well, you know, surely they'll work things out. And but that was the culture in the in my early years of life. I, I'm going to guess that with the current culture of our day, some of you are going to be shocked at my shock when I was in the seventh or eighth grade and heard that the parents of one of my friends were divorcing. Jesus' day is going to surprise you, possibly, but Jesus' day was far more like 21st century America than it was mid-20th century America in which I spent my childhood years. Divorce was common, and it was very much accepted within the religious community. Sure, I, do you know people? Who, of course I know people who are divorced. I'm thinking about it myself. How, how could this be, considering that the religious community of Israel was very, very strict. Well, Pharisees were hyper-committed to the law, but as we've seen over and over, it's, it's not that they were committed to utter strictness on every particular issue. They were committed to making the law convenient so that they might indulge their passions in particular ways uh, that calmed their consciences while maintaining this outward appearance of moral rectitude. Everybody thinks that we're so spiritual, and we are because we follow the law. But remember, Moses gave you know, 
three or four hundred laws, 500, I think it was, 517. Am I right on that? I might be off by two or three hundred there. But, but, but the regulations that the Jews put on top of the laws went around the block two or three times. And those regulations oftentimes actually indulge their passions rather than control them. Jesus exposed their hypocrisy. And before you offer a hearty amen, remember that he exposes your hypocrisy and mine as well. Every day you read scripture, it's like, oh, oh, oh my. Well, we have a lot to cover this morning. So let's begin by reading the text as we continue our study in Mark's gospel. Mark 10, 1 through 16 talks about marriage, divorce, remarriage, children, entering the kingdom of God. If only we had important matters to discuss this morning. But we've already discussed the, the part about children, so we'll stop with verse 12. If you would, please stand as we read the word. And he left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again. By the way, Jesus is steadily making his way to Jerusalem. If you read Mark, you're going to find him kind of zigzagging around. But, but, but the fact is, he is moving toward Jerusalem. He's not far off from Palm Sunday, which the text beautifully coincides with the liturgical calendar. And we'll be at Palm Sunday, on Palm Sunday, for, uh, in Mark 11. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife... And marries another, commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Father, um, you have called us to faithfulness. First and foremost to you. You have been utterly faithful to us when we were wicked sinners who could have cared less about the things of God. Or maybe we were quite religious, but in, in reality, caring about ourselves and how we look to those around us. Even then, you died for sinners. And when we become your children through faith in Christ, you remain faithful to us no matter what. Father, you have called us to be faithful to you. You have called us to be faithful to our families and particularly to the one that you have brought into our lives that we are to covenant with as long as we both shall live. I pray, Lord, that you would 
Help us to understand your heart in this matter. And that we might be drawn to the one you've called us to live life with. And for those, Lord, who have not yet been drawn to that person and some of whom would like to be drawn to that person, I pray that you would speak just as clearly to teenagers, to all of us about the importance of our relationship with our spouse. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Be seated. I've already alluded to the fact that the Pharisees were not as strict as they seemed to be. In fact, in the, in the case of, of marriage and divorce and remarriage, Jesus was startlingly, startlingly strict compared with the Pharisees. Most of the time it went the other way. Think about all the times that Jesus violated the, the, the sensibilities of the Pharisees with regard like to, to, to Sabbath laws. But here, Jesus was amazingly strict in their eyes. The, the question that the Pharisees raised was a trap. And we're going to see that over and over again as Jesus moves toward the cross. They're trying to trap him. Do they ever? No. No, of course not. Jesus constantly reveals their hearts of unbelief in the ways that he deals with their trick questions. Um, I'm going to talk about this particular text today. We're, we're not far away from the crucifixion. David is going to be preaching the next two weeks. Allison and I are going to Italy to visit Sarah La. I know you can, feel, you can come and give us your condolences afterwards. And we're on frequent flyer miles, so we've got to go halfway all over the world uh, to get there. But we're supposed to be back on Saturday night uh, after we, we leave next Saturday. So hopefully we'll be back to give a report in two weeks uh, from Joe and Stefania. We're going to be able to see them and spend time with them while we are in uh, Italy. But it, either way, David will be finishing up through Mark 10 over these next two weeks. Um, when we think of, of Jesus and the Pharisees, we tend to think of Jesus saying, lighten up instead of tighten up. But indeed, he's saying tighten up in this particular instance. The Pharisees laid the trap by saying, and they must have had some sense of what Jesus would say. They said, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife? Uh, everyone listening, including the disciples, were like, of course. It's okay for a man to divorce his wife. There was absolutely no debate about that within the Jewish community. Jewish women were not allowed to initiate divorce. <clears throat> but for men, divorce felt like an inalienable right. I mean, it's just like we talk about pursuit of happiness. Yes, a man can divorce his wife. Now, Mark's audience in Rome would be familiar with women initiating divorce, and, and maybe um, that is part of the very end of this text, but not in the Jewish community. The question was, what con conditions constituted a man's right to divorce? Many of the Pharisees followed the rabbinical teachings that allowed divorce for the most trivial reasons imaginable. Now, here's what made this question very tricky. You remember who was in charge of Galilee? Herod. 
You remember why John the Baptist lost his head? Because he dealt with this issue. Herod and his wife had both divorced their their spouses and had married. and, and, And John the Baptist called them out on it. And so Herod put him in prison and before you know it, executed him. So Jesus' opponents, again, must have thought he was vulnerable in this topic. And so they asked, can a man divorce his wife? And Jesus, in true rabbinical form, answered the question with a question. What did Moses tell you? They thought they had him when they sweetened the bait a little bit. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Case closed, Jesus. Are you going to argue with Moses like you normally do? Sooner or later, the people are going to get mad with you for doing that, and we'll have you. Now, the Pharisees were referring to Deuteronomy 24.1 and the verses that immediately followed. Uh, when Moses wrote this passage, it's clear that, once again, divorce was common within the Jewish community in a society in which women were utterly unprotected. And so, God wrote protection for women into the law. If you find indecency in your wife, then you must write her a certificate of divorce which frees her to marry someone else. This was actually quite merciful because indecency is defined by Jesus and and how people understood it at first, which was adultery. The penalty for that was death by stoning. Better to be divorced than dead. So in their typical twisting of the law to suit themselves, the, the Pharisees began to interpret Deuteronomy 24 to say that if there was anything at all that displeased the husband, he could send her away. In response to the Pharisees, Jesus was about to rock the disciples' world, worlds, if, if not change Pharisaical minds. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Whatever, therefore, God has joined together, let not man separate. The man, by the way, in this case is the husband in the relationship, not a judge at the court who can certify a divorce. Now, if if you read this text all by itself, you will conclude that there's absolutely no legitimate grounds for divorce other than adultery or actually even that there's just no um, grounds for divorce whatsoever. Sometimes separate scriptures seem to be competing with one another. This scripture seems this like it's this, but oftentimes if, if the same story is being told like we see over and over in the Gospels, it's just completing the story. This writer is giving one aspect, this writer is giving another. Or if it's a, a, about doctrine, It's given us a fuller picture of God, not a competing picture about truth. We ultimately conclude that God is bigger than we are, and truth is larger than our finite minds can comprehend about the infinite. 
So such is the case here where we're getting a fuller understanding. Matthew 19, 9 says this, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. In legal terms, we would call this an exception clause. You're not allowed to divorce except in this particular case. Um, By the way, Jesus, like Moses, not only allowed for divorce in the case of adultery, but he also allowed for remarriage when a person divorced for acceptable reasons. Why didn't Mark include the exception clause? Almost certainly because it was assumed that Jesus allowed divorce in the case of an unfaithful unfaithful partner. He also allowed remarriage in that case. That's what the certificate of divorce was all about. If a man gave his wife a certificate of divorce, she could say, okay, I'm free to marry. So, just so you'll know, I'm, I'm released from that requirement before. Now, we need to be very careful not to make the same mistake the Pharisees did in in a different direction. And and the same mistake that the Pharisees usually made, which is to be stricter than the law required. To give you an idea of the thinking in that day, after Jesus made his comments about no divorce, as recorded by Matthew, the verses right after this one, the disciples said, then who should marry? I mean, essentially they're saying, who in their right mind would would marry if you can't divorce? (coughs) Gosh, you, you hear that today, don't you? I mean, essentially, that's what people say. Do you plan, do you you promise to to live together forever? Nobody can promise that. You don't know. You'll probably grow apart in it. What happens if you grow apart in love? So Jesus taught that marriage was designed to be permanent. And only the most extreme behavior allowed one to dissolve the marriage covenant. But before we return to Jesus' extremely important comments on God's wonderfully difficult design for marriage, let's look at one more place where Scripture speaks to an acceptable reason for divorce and remarriage. 1 Corinthians 7, we're we're picking it up in in midstream in verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Now, does that confuse you? You ever wondered what is meant by this? It's not like Paul is saying, look, look, I know what the Lord says, but I'm just going to give you my personal opinion here. No, almost every time you see the word Lord in the New Testament, it's referring to Jesus. And all Paul is saying is, now, this was not Jesus' teaching, but it's God's truth. I'm giving you a fuller truth. There's a possibility Paul spent most of three years in the deserts of Arabia learning the gospel from Jesus himself. Jesus, we see Jesus showing up several times in the book of Acts. And though it's not stated, we know that that Paul had quite an experience in the deserts for three years after he was saved. And Paul is simply saying, you're not going to find this in the teachings of Jesus that are recorded in the Gospels. But I am telling you, 
To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. You know, we spend so much time talking about not being uh, unequally yoked, and, and that's we, it's right that we do that because it's biblical, but there's a lot of emphasis here about what a difference a believing spouse can make. What, what the case was, was a number of these people had come to Jesus uh, since they had been married, and so they were living with unbelieving spouses. And, and Paul is saying, if your unbelieving spouse is willing to stay with you, stay. Don't go anywhere. If they want to go, Go, and then, in verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So here is another exception clause for divorce. If you are a believer uh, and an unbelieving spouse walks away, you're free from any biblical requirements regarding your marriage. Verse 15 says, in such a case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. You're free. You're not bound, it says in some of your um, translations. So in other words, you are freed up to remarry. You have no further requirements with regard to that particular marriage. But divorce is not God's design for marriage nor his desire. In fact, when the Pharisees sought to trap Jesus, he exposed their hearts while pointing to God's design for marriage. We talk about the gospel story here, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It starts with creation. So whenever the created order is identified as the reason that we do or do not do something. It's a big deal. That's why, socially difficult as it is, for us to just to, to exist as Grace Community Church with only male leadership, we do so. Because in 1 Timothy 2, God connects church leadership with the created order. And so when people ask me about, let me ask you about your church. Do you have women in leadership? I almost want to go, uh, but it's the order that was created. Someone asked me recently, do you think, do you not, do you not communicate that women are lesser than men, are less important than men if you don't allow them to be leaders? I, I said only if you communicate that Jesus is a lesser God than the father because he always did what the father commanded him so pray for me but all of us we need to get over society telling us how we've got to do things when god set the world in motion do you think it would be best if he were completely in charge i i think it would be and we're going to find out again one day when the when the world is restored to its pre-fallen state and it's so much better than it is than it was even in eden because we sing the song of the redeemed 
We sing, we're here because of Jesus. Hallelujah. So, <clears throat> God says that marriage, this is the way God intended it from the very beginning. He created man and woman, male and female. He created mankind in this way. Men and women designed to become one flesh. Divorce is not at all what God intended for marriage. His intention, in fact, is for man and woman to become that one flesh. And that implies so much more than a physical union. As we learn in other places, marriage is designed to be a picture of the more important union between Jesus and his bride, the church. See, we think about, oh, Jesus and the church, yeah, that's a picture of of marriage. No, no. Our marriage is a picture of the more important union, which is Jesus and his church. The mysterious union of man and woman into one flesh is also indicative of the mystery of the Trinity. Three persons, one substance. Not at all the same, of course, but a hint nonetheless. And you can see parallels. And that, as I've already pointed out, the Father always, always tells the Son and the Spirit what to do. Just like wives always tell their... No, I'm kidding. It's a, it, it, it could be very opposite in your house. It could be, you know, so... But there is order in the Trinity, and yet they're equal... They're one. They're totally united. So if man and woman are designed to become one flesh, wrapped up and enveloped in one another, why is it so difficult? Now this may come as an absolute shock to you, but the differences between men and women are greater than just physical. We are different. They discover that in, you know, the secular press every so often. Late 80s, Time Magazine, men and women are different. And I'm like, ah, what a shock. And they've just said it recently. You know, we're wired to physiologically, we are, we are structured in such ways that we're going to function differently. There's a lot that we share that is common to the human experience. But there are... There are many differences between the ways that men and women perceive reality that make becoming one flesh more than a little bit of a challenge in a fallen world. Before Adam and Eve disobeyed God, their relationship was exactly as it should be, just as God designed it. But since the fall, well, we've had a lot of problems, haven't we? The physical relationship between men and women is obvious, obviously a big deal. It is so significant, in fact, that God says if this relationship is violated, then you are free to walk away. Even though God makes it clear in Malachi that he hates divorce. I get it, though. I understand why God allows divorce in the case of unfaithfulness. But even then... Aren't you glad that God does not divorce you every time you're unfaithful to him? 
while I never fault someone for walking away from a marriage when a spouse has been unfaithful, and, and Scripture allows it, so be careful who you condemn. I, I, I've, I can't tell you how many believers I've had to say, you know, they say, God, I just wish that, you know, he or she would get past this. And I say, Scripture allows it. Don't, don't require more of them than Jesus does. Even still, it is not God, and, and it is far better to reserve walking away from a relationship when there is an unrepentant pattern that continues of adultery. Now, that doesn't mean I'm sorry for being unfaithful for the fifth time is a get-out-of-jail-free card. That's not the point. But God's design is this union not be dissolved. Seems to take a lot less than adultery for many Christians to walk away. I just don't think God would want me to stay in a marriage in which my, my spouse holds me back spiritually. Really? Really? That's, that's, that's what you think? Tell me how that's any better than Deuteronomy 24. When, when the Pharisees would point to Deuteronomy 24 and say, if there's some indecency found in my wife, she burnt supper three times this week. I'm not talking about one time. This is a pattern. I've got to divorce her. If you marry the wrong person, the minute you say, I do, he or she becomes the right person. But God told, no, he didn't. God did not tell you to walk away. I want to talk about becoming one flesh. I, really, what I want to do is preach for, for six weeks about this. Except that I get tested on the stuff that I preach. I do. I'm, and, and Allison has been so wonderfully beautiful. And she's been so patient with me uh, lately. Well, I, we have laughed more this week. It's, God has blessed us so much. I kept waiting for the... You know, the hammer to fall because that's just the way it is. I get tested on what I, so, you know, we have a tough time this week, baby. It ain't my fault. You know, it's just a spiritual warfare, okay? So before we talk about becoming one flesh, though, let's deal with a couple of related issues. What about someone who has an emotional affair? I, I don't know. I confess that it is absolutely unfaithfulness. And in many ways, it, it's, it's just as painful, maybe more so, than, than, than a physical union. Because sometimes people just mess up. It's a one-time affair. But it's a one-time fling and, and, and there's horrible regret. But an emotional affair is one that's intentional and it's ongoing and your heart is being given. And if one flesh is more than physical, that's adultery, right? But by, by the way, let me back up. No adultery just happens. It doesn't just happen. I'm only making the point because of that intensity of relationship that God imp- Tens in one flesh. What about pornography? Same answer. I don't know. 
I would rarely recommend that a woman walk away from a man over pornography unless it's an unrepentant addiction. There's no doubt it's a violation of the marriage vow. Men are easily stimulated by physical images. But thank God our society is set up to limit temptation in that realm. I don't see how if you're a man you can stay pure without some sort of accountability. Whether it's to a close friend or whether it's to your wife. Sometimes it's best that it be another man instead of your wife. If your wife can handle it, it's best that it be to her in that area. Whatever you decide to do, you need help in an area that is difficult for you to begin with and in an area where your senses are attacked every single day. What about physical or emotional abuse? First of all, if there's physical abuse... Get out and get safe. Now. There's physical abuse. Do not stay in that marriage. And don't make somebody feel you making you guilty. I'm not saying initiate divorce proceedings. But, but get to a safe place. Whether it's with you or your children. Get to a safe place. I, I want to be careful not to read something in the scripture that is not here that's see that's what the pharisees constantly did isogesis reading into the text they 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 look at scripture and they'd say oh well i see how that and 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 then they make it say something it really doesn't say but look at the principle here think about the principle almost every law about divorce is instituted for the protection of women now Look, men typically have quite an advantage over women when it comes to, if, if there's going to be a fight, usually the man's going to win. Um, if you really understand ancient culture, you'll recognize that God is not a chauvinist, Paul's not a misogynist. I mean, if you're a man, you struggle with pride, with anger, and with lust. Can I get an amen from the male side, not from the, the females? It's no wonder God makes it clear he's not going to tolerate our lack of self-control when it comes to marriage. In our day, while women don't have the same kind of power that men have in different areas of, of the relationship, they have a whole lot more than they did in the past. And the words of Scripture are just as binding on women as they are on men. What about emotional abuse? Again, hard to say. I mean, it's hard, hard for me to make a, a, a judgment based on biblical principle. Uh, any, almost anything uh, can constitute emotional abuse in the minds of some. But having said that, how dare you tell your wife or your husband or your child that he or she is worthless just because they don't meet your needs in exactly the ways that you need them to be met. The ways that you demand. Please get counseling if you are emotionally abusive to anybody in your house or if you are emotionally abused. So as we are quickly running out of time, how are we to respond to God's design of husband and wife becoming one flesh? 
here, here are a few, few thoughts that might help you in this amazingly difficult, incredibly beautiful design that God has given for marriage. First of all, eliminate any outside influences that threaten God's design of one flesh for your marriage. You ever notice that God calls a man to leave his father and mother and cling to his wife? He doesn't call a woman to leave her parents and cling to her husband. Why do you think that is? Maybe, maybe it's all encompassed in the one and not necessary in, in God's mind. But maybe it's because it's more natural for women to seek to make a home of their own and to respond. They just understand this is the way of things. <laughs> you remember when Abraham uh, sent his servant to find a bride for Isaac. Rebekah went with the servant within a matter of hours of him getting there. He spent the night one time, and he said, the servant said, let's go. And they said, man, give us a week. He said, no, 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 let's go now. And they called Rebecca, and they said, will you go? And she said, yes, realizing she would never again see her parents or family. Never. And she just went. Doesn't always work that way. Some women are going to call their mother multiple times a day. But there are far more mama's boys than there are daddy's girls or even mama's girls. Guys, if you need to choose between your wife and your parents, grow up. It's God's created order. He's called you to leave them and cling to your wife, parents of adult. Children, especially adult males, do not get in the way of your son's marriage. Well, he should have chose. Oh, shut up. Just, just stop it. I've never told you to shut up before. It may be the last thing I ever tell you. I may be on the, they may say, extend your stay in Italy. <laughs> Ladies, if your man needs to choose between you and his parents, let me just give you a little hint. The more you remind him that he needs to choose, the less likely he's going to be to make that choice. Or he's going to make it under protest. And it's not going to contribute to one flesh. Back off and just pray and let God move in his heart. But make no mistake, men, you need to leave your parents and cling to your wife. That doesn't mean we always go to her family for vacations and never to his. All that stuff's part of becoming one flesh. It's tough to work out. I understand that, especially when you've got strong personalities in the mix. And there's some strong personality somewhere in your family, whether both of you are just as docile as you can be. Um. <clears throat> If you don't leave your family, you will never become one flesh. And men, you are going to give more of an account than your wife one day. That's just the way it is. Leaders are accountable. And if God has made you the head of the home, assume your responsibility. And you young guys, don't wait forever. There are a lot of young women that are ready. Get married. And, and fulfill God's design. 
it, it, God's design is far more complex than simply not letting your parents negatively affect your relationship. Don't let anything come in between you and your relationship. Second, save your greatest affection for Jesus. I've, I've heard, and I know I've told this story before. I, I, I've heard, I don't know if it's true, but it's, it's, it's accurate anyway. It's great. I heard that Charles Spurgeon, when he proposed to his wife, said, you realize if you marry me, you'll never be first place in my life. And she said, that's okay. If Jesus is first place in your life, I'll always be next. And that's true. If Jesus is first place in your life, the next relationship for you is your spouse. Now, again, this is just my observation. I could be way wrong on this. I could be way off. You could say, oh, that's not the way I'd do it. Look, these guys came up here with their children this morning. Husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. I'm going to guess that, and God forbid that it happened, but if you were in a place where husbands and fathers, if you had to choose between saving your wife and saving your children, you would save your wife. We're just, that's just the way our instincts seem to go. Mothers, uh, husbands, I got bad news for you. Your wife ain't going to do the same for you. She's going to save the kids. But, but we're just natured that way, right? Or that's the way it ought to be. Uh, if Jesus is first place in our lives, our spouse is going to be next in line. If Jesus is not first in your life, then make him so. Again, this, this marriage is a picture of the real deal. And it feels like the real deal to us, whether it's wonderful or not so wonderful. But it's a picture of the amazing relationship that we can have with Christ if we put our trust in what he did to pay for our sin. So if he's not first in your life, make him so. If you give him the attention that you should, do not neglect your spouse. It's probably not too many of you who are upset because your husband or wife is spending too much time on church things, but it could be. You've got to make your spouse that priority. I, I've spoken of temptations for men, but that doesn't imply that women don't have issues of their own. I've seen women pray for years for their husbands to be saved and, and to become the spiritual leader of their house. Only to find that when it happens, it's far more difficult to give up the spiritual leadership of the home than they thought that it was. I've never heard a man say, the Lord told me that I will never grow like he wants me to if I stay in my marriage. My wife is holding me back. But I've heard more than one woman say that. I don't think God would want me to stay in this marriage with an ungodly husband. Let me tell you, t tell you something. You did not hear that from God. It didn't come from God. It came from your desire to twist the scriptures to make them say what you want them to say.
If you're willing to walk away from your husband simply because he's not as spiritual as you want him to be, you don't love Jesus as much as you think you do. God makes allowances for you to divorce, but lack of spirituality is not one of them. If your unbelieving husband, if your unbelieving wife wants to go, let him go. But if they're content to stay with you, stay with them. But goodness, look, and, and look, Every situation is different. You're going to say, you don't understand, and you're right, I don't understand. And there, there's always more than just this, simply this, this, or this. There's, there's so much in marriage. But God's design is one flesh. Third, last of all, learn to appreciate the differences that God has built into your spouse. There's really not much to say about that, so we should, actually, there's, There are months and months to say about that. No one has to tell us that men and women are different. But God designed us to fit together for our differences to make us more complete. Either we celebrate our differences or we are annoyed by the differences that our spouse brings to the table. This is generally, you know, men and women in general And it's very specifically into the personality traits and all the different factors that go into making up the complex person that you live with as husband or wife. When our differences bring us into conflict, tell me, what's easier? Just to be angry or to sulk or to withdraw or to work through the problems and to seek understanding of God's design for marriage, for one flesh. Why is it so difficult? Uh, Tim Keller said, we are always the last to see our own self-absorption. Unfortunately, our spouse is usually the first to see our self-absorption, regardless of how it plays itself out. And instead of being grateful for him or hers, her keen insight into our shortcomings and their marvelous ways of trying to help us overcome that, Um, we become defensive and accuse our spouse of not understanding, not respecting, not caring. And you know what? We're often right. How do we fix all of that? Uh, Here's just a thought. Ask God for a heart that celebrates his spirit of independence or her nesting instincts that draw you back into the home or his competitive spirit that makes sports so important to him or her fiery determination to protect home and children which conflicts with your love of sports. And you know, it just goes on and on and on. I'm going to go out on the limb today and say that there are no perfect marriages in the house. Not a one. In fact, it's impossible In a fallen world. But because of Jesus' redemption. A good marriage is possible. Give up your ideal. Especially those of you who are young. Who have just been married for the last year or two. Give up your ideal for a perfect marriage. Work for a good one. If you are committed to your marriage. Eventually you will be committed to your spouse. What? What? Now look, again, I don't know what your circumstances are at home. Sometimes you can do everything right and it's just not going to happen because your spouse chooses not 
to be in this process with you. I get that. So I'm not preaching at you. I'm not talking. My heart hurts deeply for you. If you're doing everything you can and it's not happening. But for most of us, most of you where you are right now, if you will be committed to your marriage, eventually you will be committed to your spouse. Sometimes it takes years and years and years to appreciate the person that God brought into your life. And you want to say, wow, I just, I I had no idea you were like this. I can't believe it. What is wrong with you? Really, the question is, what's wrong with you? More often than not, commitment is the cornerstone of the marriage that you are building. By the way, we just, look, I, I confess, I confess We don't do enough to build and protect marriages at Grace Community Church. And that needs to change. We need to do more to help you in your marriage or prepare for marriage. Or to deal with the pain of divorce or abuse or abandonment. We need to do more about that. Hold us to it. Hold the elders to that. And I'm taking the ultimate responsibility on that. Look, here's one thing that I can say. This is a teeny little thing, but this fall, there's a marriage retreat at TVR that several of you have signed up. Others of you are thinking, I don't know. Look, while there's space, get in. I can't tell you how many marriages have been completely turned around because of that weekend. Go. Commitment is the cornerstone of the marriage that you are building. Do everything you can to build it, to protect it, to handle it with tenderness. Take a long, hard look at yourself. One flesh is God's incredibly difficult and yet spectacularly beautiful design for marriage. Let's pray. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine, according to the power that is at work within us, be all glory and praise and honor in the church, in our families, through Christ Jesus. Go in peace.